Our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. That can be found on page 1 of your Bible. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast on the earth And to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mark Bates, after that wonderful introduction, uh, and it's good to to be back with you. I've uh, been off uh, during the holidays, and thank you to uh, both Steve and Lee, who uh, preach or great things. Uh, I was here for, for Lee's and I'm looking forward to listening to Steve's sermon. Uh, we are beginning a new year. We're beginning a new series. We're beginning a new emphasis. Uh, in a few weeks, we are going to start a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you go ahead and look at that in the next few weeks, you're going to see we're going to deal with all kinds of fun and controversial issues. And uh, so it uh, should be a great time as we learn about what it means to live authentic faith uh, gospel living in a, uh, in, in a, just in a, in a wild world, in a, in a broken world. Uh, before that, though, we are beginning a, a new emphasis this year. Last year, our emphasis was on kingdom prayer. We're done with prayer. Uh, no. Uh, we're going to continue on with prayer, but we're going to be a bit more focused. And this year, our emphasis is on for the city. And so we're going to be talking about praying for our city all year and also engaging in our city and loving our city. And so this week, as well as the next couple of weeks, I'm going to introduce that topic. Uh, I was hoping to do it all this week, and I could, but we would be here till noon. And so we're going to do it over three weeks and uh, talk about what it means to be for the city. And so um, we're going to start here, obviously, in the book of Genesis. And, you know, God's mission's global. Um, but uh, we all have a role to play in God's mission, and we certainly have a role to play in his global mission. We'll be talking about that in February, uh, but, we, we, but we live locally. Uh, Annie Dillard said, the, the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. And so 
Uh, we want to be living on mission daily. Well, where do you live daily? You live right here in Colorado Springs. So what does it mean to live on mission uh, here in Colorado Springs? Well, in the opening of his book, Rising to the Call, Oz Guinness tells a story of his encounter with a, a very wealthy, successful man at a, a meeting uh, near Oxford University. And the man said to him, you know, as you know, I've been very fortunate I've made a lot of money in my life, far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. And as a single tear rolled down his, his, uh, his cheek, he said, to be honest, one of the reasons uh, I made so much money was simple. It was not to hire people to do all the things I didn't want to do. Uh, but he said, there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me and that is to find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I would give anything to discover that. Guinness goes on uh, to observe that in modern Western civilization is the first one, first civilization in history to have no agreed upon answer to the question of the purpose of life. We have much to live with and we have little to live for. You cannot have a meaningful life if you don't know what the meaning of life is. You cannot live a life with purpose if you don't know what the purpose of life is. And we have a, a, a whole civilization that has been taught that, that essentially life is without meaning. It comes from nothing, it ends in nothing, but you're supposed to make something of the middle of it anyway. Well, there's a different story, a truer story about who we are and who we're meant to be. So as we're beginning the new year, we're going to begin by asking these important questions. Who am I and why am I here? Who am I and why am I here? Those are, are critical questions. And I think in our, in our busy lives, uh, particularly as, as those who are so distracted, where there's no silence in anything, where we just move from one thing to the next, we don't even think about these questions. We live, we live as, uh, as one uh, philosopher said, in the imminent frame. We live with that is which is, is nearby to us. Or as, as Solomon said, we live as if all of life is under the sun. It's all what we can see. We don't live for a greater purpose. But you can't have a meaningful life unless you know the meaning of life. So who am I and why am I here? Let's begin with that first question, who am I? Well, before, uh, we see this in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, it answers the, the most uh, important questions about who am I, and it says we are God's image bearers. But before telling us who we are, the Bible tells us who God is. And so the opening words to the book of Genesis are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so instantly we learned something. We learned that there is a God and he created all things. He created all things visible and invisible. He did not start with any pre-existing material. And that's why, uh, though sometimes people will use this Latin phrase, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. That doesn't mean he had nothing to start with and there's nothing, because nothing is nothing. He started with nothing. There's no substance called nothing. Out of nothing, he spoke and things came into being. And so he alone has the power of being, he alone has the power of existence, and he alone brought the world in, into to existence. And so after these opening words of Genesis chapter one, verse one, and Genesis chapter two, we read that now the earth was formless and void. Formless and void, two important words. 
By formless, that means it has no shape, it has no space. And so in uh, days one, two, and three, we see that God takes this formless world and he gives it shape. Uh, in the first day, three days, he takes uh, a light, he separates light from darkness, he separates the sea from the land, and then he fills the earth with vegetation. What's he doing? He's, he's taking this formless earth and he's creating space for habitation. He's creating space so that there can be a place where, where people can live. And then in days four, five, and six, he takes this earth that was formless and void, and void means empty, and he takes this void world and he begins to fill it up. He fills the sea with fish, the, the sky with birds, the land with animals, and he fills it up. And after he's made everything else, he then creates his magnum opus, the, the highest point of his creation. And he creates human beings who are creatures like other animals, but they are unlike other animals in this, that they bear the very image of God. No other animal does this. No other creature does this. It, God creates his human, these human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. Do you want to know who you are? You are the image of God. You bear his likeness. You bear his glory. You, you bear the image of the divine. And, and so the reason we have to, this is so important is to know who you are. It helps to know where you came from. I have a, a friend, he's a a fellow pastor, actually he was a kid in the youth group in my church in Orlando, now he's a pastor in our denomination. And he grew up um, with a single mom, he never knew his dad, uh, he's not even sure his mom really knew his dad, I mean obviously they'd met once, but that was probably about it. And uh, he never really thought much about it. Uh, they grew up very poor, uh, life was hard, but he didn't think much about that. Well one year someone gave them uh, a kit from Ancestry.com, uh, you know, like the Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and so he took the test and uh, took the DNA test, and he, he really wasn't expecting to find anything about his father because for his father to show up, that means he would have had to take the test too, and you know, most people haven't taken those sorts of tests. Well, he took the test, and he found out he had siblings that he never knew about, and, uh, and then after finding out about these siblings, through them, he found out about his dad. Well, he first uh, kind of reached out to his biological father, and his biological father was at first a little bit uh, skeptical about getting together with him because he was quite wealthy. My friend had grown up quite poor, and he thought maybe he was just after the money. Uh, but he kind of warmed up to the idea, and they actually got together for dinner. And uh, first time to ever meet his biological father, and he said, he said, I'm Jewish. I never knew I was Jewish. He said, now, you know, I don't know why meeting my father mattered to me. You know, it's a, I didn't think it mattered. I never thought about that. I didn't think that was important. But now that I'm learning who he is and learning I'm actually Jewish in my identity, my, my, my genetics, I'm going, it's, it's actually changed. It's changed how I think about things. It, it, it's, it's changed how I, I think about myself because actually it's changed the way I read the Old Testament even. Uh, and... Um, and, and you know, I thought about that, that this, uh, the significance of, of finding out who his father is. Now, from talking to him and talking to uh, those who are adopted, including uh, those in my own family, now for some, learning about your biological parents may be irrelevant. Um, you know, after all, uh, family is made up by love, not by DNA. Uh, that's what makes a family. And so for those of you who are adopted, uh, who, like my friend, may not know who your father is. Now, that's important. It's, 
It's, it's not DNA that makes a family, it's love. And while that's true, for some, like my friend, knowing something about his father's heritage has given him at least some sort of better understanding uh, or a better appreciation of who he is. He, he knows where he comes from. And in Genesis, we learn who we are. Where did you come from? Some would say if you trace your DNA back far enough, you know, you might look back and go, hey, maybe I'm a Habsburg or maybe I'm a Windsor, you know, or, or maybe I'm a, I am a, a princess from Africa, descendant of them. Or, but they say if you keep tracing back far enough, you're going to get to apes. And then you can trace it back far enough, you can get to an amoeba. That, you know, I mean, that's who we are. That's, that's your heritage. Well, the Bible says no. If you trace back your family back far enough, you're not, uh, you're not a Windsor. You're not a Habsburg. You, know, you don't have a castle in Scotland. You are a child of God. You are made in the image of God. You have the dignity and glory as that one who bears his image. And that's not only true of you. That's true of every single person you meet. Every single person you meet, and it, and it should change the way we view other people. Uh, it should change the way we, we think about them. Because every human being you meet has glory and dignity. Uh, you may look at people and they get so angry because their political views are wrong, which is defined as different than yours. And, um, and, and you look at them and the way they live is wrong, which may be absolutely true, different from the word of God. And, and yet you, you look at them and, and, and you begin to look at them with disgust and disdain. And when you do that, you're denying the image of God. You're denying their royal heritage. You're denying their dignity and their worth. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his, his uh, great essay on the weight of glory, uh, it says this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry and uh, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And think about that. That's true of every single human being you meet. And when you begin to realize this, you begin to realize that command to love your neighbor means to love the image of God and to despise your neighbor and to look at disgust upon your neighbor is to despise and to look upon disgust the very image of God. It's not insulting only to them, it's insulting to God. And so we're called to love our neighbor and to love our neighbors here in Colorado Springs. And so your neighbor has dignity and glory because your neighbor's made in God's image just as you are. So the answer to the question, who am I, is I'm an image bearer of the glorious God. Uh, that's who you are, but that doesn't tell the, not, the whole story. The next question is, why am I here? Why am I here? And, uh, and here we see uh, something in, in verse 28 that is called, often called the, the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. Uh, and so what we see here is we're royals. Uh, we, are, we are royal people, but we're royals. We're different from, from you know, Meghan and Harry. You're, you're not like the people in the crown. If you've watched the crown, it's a bunch of rich people who have a lot of money and nothing to do. Um, and and, and uh, that's not who you are. You're, 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 you're royal, and because of that, you have a royal mission. And that mission is stated for us in verse 28, the cultural mandate. It says, and God blessed them, that's uh, human beings, he blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So 
Here's what we have in common with the other creatures. Like the other creatures, we're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God said that to the other creatures. But here, we're to do that in a different way because we are God's image bearers. And so we are image bearers who are filling the earth. Now, the significance of this is that in the ancient world, uh, kings would oftentimes show that they are in charge of a territory by putting their image and statues of themselves around their territory. In fact, in fact, rulers do that today. You know, remember when we invaded Iraq, there are statues of Saddam Hussein up and around. And so, what do we do? You pull those things down, right? Uh, they're no longer in charge here. Uh, you know, dictators do that in North Korea, uh, Cuba, e- even in Saudi Arabia where conservative Muslims do not believe you should have an image of anything, they have images of the king uh, to show his rule over Saudi Arabia. And so in the same way, though, it says that God creates human beings in his own image and they're placed where to fill the earth to show his rule and his dominion over the earth. And, and so we are to be his, his, his authoritative rulers as his image bearers. And what that means is the final authority belongs to God. God has said, here's the earth, you're to exercise dominion over it, but you're doing that not on your own. You're doing that as my image bearers. You're doing that in my stead, in my place. We are, we are representative rulers. And as God's representative rulers, he gives us two commands in these verses that are closely related. Uh, the first command is that we are to subdue the earth. Uh, to subdue is not the same thing as subjugate. Subjugate is to enslave. To subdue is to harness it so it accomplishes its purpose, to bring order to it. So it's part of our sacred mission as God's image bearers to rule over all of God's creation. And so we do this. It's a, you know, think about the, the most simplest way, or not, it's not the simplest as an easiest, the most obvious, agriculture. Uh, we, are, we are taking uh, just untilled soil and we're bringing about all the wonderful food that we get to eat. And we do it through all forms of culture and technology. Uh, we, we build, we create, we develop, we make good use of the wonderful resources our world has to offer. I, I'm, I'm often amazed at just how many uses you can find out of simple things. You know, sand, silicone. You know, it's in your cell phone, it's in, your, it's, it's in plastic, it's in your car, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, and how we take just a, a raw resource and you make it into something, you know, something useful and wonderful. And that, God says when we do that, we're, we're fulfilling that divine command, that, that cultural mandate. And not only are we told to subdue the earth, he says we're to have dominion over it. That is, we're to rule over it. But again... We don't rule over it as our own, uh, under our own authority. We do it as God's image bearers. We, we rule uh, as those who bear his image and therefore to rule in his way. And so in other words, the earth is not ours to do with it whatever we want. We're to rule as God would rule. Uh, Christopher Wright points out this. The image of God is not a license for arrogant abuse, but a pattern that commits us to the humble reflection of the character of God. So how does God rule? How does God rule over his creation? How does God rule over us? And we see that God is a ruler who rules with compassion and justice and wisdom and mercy. And so when we rule, we're to rule in the same way. Uh, In the next chapter, go from Genesis 1, get to Genesis chapter 2. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And here we see God again 
fleshing out this command to rule. And he begins in a specific place because again, you know, Adam and Eve, humanity is given the whole globe to rule over, but you have to start somewhere. And so God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And in verses, verse 15, we read this. The Lord took the man, that's Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work and keep. Let's look at those two words. Those two words, work and keep, are later on used to describe the work of the priest in the temple. And those two terms, when they're put together, are talking about priestly work. And so one of the things we, we learn about this is that our work, our labor, is sacred work. Again, we tend to divide the world into the sacred and the secular. And so we have the sacred, people like me who engage in sacred work. I'm about God's work, right, you know? I'm doing God's work because I do the Bible and, uh, and, uh, and prayer. You know, that's what I'm paid to do. And then you have secular work. Accounting, engineering, soldiering, uh, you know, uh, plumbing, you know, secular work. We think about it that way, right? We think, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, you have that such a special calling. You know, you're called to do God's work. I do have a special calling. So do you. We're all called to do God's work. And God says when we go about the work that he's given us to do, we're actually engaging in a priestly function. It is sacred work. To be a carpenter is sacred work. To be an accountant, what you're doing on the count is you're, you're figuring out how somebody can accomplish a mission with resources. And, and, and it's, 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 it's the cultural mandate. It, it, it's fulfilling the, the command that God has, has given to us. So it's the work of priests. Uh, and so, you know, so your work is not secular in the sense, if you're a Christian, you're in full-time Christian service regardless of your work. You are in ministry. Whatever your calling is, is ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you can do anything and do it to the glory of God. There's certain things you cannot do to the glory of God, right? There's certain things that would not be God-honoring, and so you have to think about that. Uh, in fact, John Cotton was an early American uh, preacher, he came over uh, in the uh, uh, early uh, 1600s to the United States from England, and he gave uh, three criteria for choosing a job. And I, I think these criteria are, are great, and particularly for those who are thinking about what your career might be, it could be very helpful. Uh, his first criteria kind of makes sense, or it was one of his first, you should be gifted for it. That makes sense. I've had people say, I really feel like God's calling me to be a singer. And they can't sing. No, God is not calling you to be a singer. You know, you have to be gifted for it. God did not call me to be in the NBA. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not, not gifted for it, no matter how much I want it. Uh, it has to be, uh, 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 also you have to be gifted, you have to be guided to it by God. That means you should be praying, seeking the Lord's guidance for where you should go. And then he says, it should be a warrantable calling wherein we aim not only at our own good, but the public good. In other words, you ought to be thinking about how is my work going to be a blessing to others? And that, that is a critical question. In other words, not only how am I going to do this job in order to make money, you've got to take care of your family, that's important. But the important key to the job is how is this job going to contribute to the public good? And if you can't answer that question, you need to be asking yourself, why are you in this? Because your job ought to be contributing to the public good. Now, that ought not to be that hard to figure out. You know, uh, if you if you're are, are, um, 
you know, a, a salesperson. You're helping people get products that they need or desire. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, if you're selling insurance, you're making it so I can afford a house and I don't have to worry if a storm comes, I'm going to be wiped out, right? It, you, know, you ought to be able to figure that out. And, but we ought to be looking, saying, my job then is not simply a way I'm going to find self-fulfillment. My job, my work, my labor is something I do for the service of others. I'm called to serve through my work because my work ultimately is ministry. And by the way, we see that even more if we go back to uh, these two words uh, that, uh, that uh, are used to, to work and to keep the garden. Right, let's look at those two words a little bit more. The Hebrew word that is translated to work <clears throat> literally means to serve. At, it, at its core, it can be translated work, but its root meaning is the idea of service. It carries the idea of, of doing hard work in the process of serving others. So uh, while it may talk about hard work or cultivation, the core meaning is service. And so that means as we engage in our dominion over creation, as we rule over creation, we do it as servant leaders. We don't do it as tyrants. We do it as servant leaders. And the word to keep, the word to keep can mean to protect, to keep something safe. So in exercising our authority over creation, we're called to serve and protect. Serve and protect. That'd be a great motto for a police department. Uh, uh, serve and protect. And it, it's, of course, it's all of our calling. And of course, Adam failed at that later on in Genesis 3. And we'll talk about that another time. But uh, we are to rule over God's creation as his image bearers. And we're to exercise authority uh, in a way that serves and protects. Now again, this flips on its head the way we oftentimes think about authority. Oftentimes the way we think about, I'm in charge, that means I get to decide what I want to do. And we think about leadership, sometimes think I want to be the boss because then I get to make the decisions and I get to get, get my way. But in the Bible, that's not what leadership is. In the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, leadership is always servant leadership. Always servant leadership. God entrusts us with power and authority for the purpose of serving others. And we are to exercise dominion, but our dominion is to be an act of service. Uh, Jesus, of course, said this very thing. In Matthew chapter 20, he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles uh, lord, lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be greatest among you uh, uh, must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. God does not give us power and authority to serve ourselves, but to serve others. And so Jesus himself, the Lord over all creation, the one in whose image we are made, has come to serve Yet there, we must see there's an important note uh, that we cannot miss. Jesus did not just come to serve, but he came to offer his life as a ransom for many. Now that, as he's talking about leadership, then now he also talks about being a ransom for many. And the implication is clear. If Jesus came to present his life as a ransom for many, then that means then that we are people in need of ransoming. We are people in need of redeeming. And that leads us to the second part of our mission, which is often called the Great Commission. 
the Great Commission. So we have the cultural mandate, and now we have the Great Commission. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God blesses humanity by giving us a mission. As image bearers, we are to be as representative rulers over all creation. God models this servant leadership by creating a garden uh, for us that we might enjoy in a world for us. He blesses us, he serves us by providing these things for us. And even as he creates this beautiful world for us to enjoy, he only puts one stipulation on us, and that is he says that they could eat of any of the trees of the garden, any of the fruit that they would delight in, except for one exception. Uh, the, the lone exception is the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and putting this restriction on Adam and Eve, God was not being a tyrant. He was not oppressing them. He was calling them to live a life of faith and of trust. He is calling them to trust that he had their best interest at heart and to trust him enough to obey him and to believe that his commands are good for them. But Adam and Eve decided not to trust God. They did not believe his word. They decided instead to trust their own judgment. They, could not, they, they decided that they could decide for themselves what was right and wrong. They did not want God to be ruling over them. And this is what sin is. Sin is a rejection of God's rule. At the core, sin is the opposite of faith. Uh, faith believes. Faith trusts. Faith says, God, I believe that you know what is best. I believe you have my best interest at heart. I trust you, and therefore I'm going to obey you. Faith and trust always result in obedience. But, but sin does the opposite. Uh, sin is when we break faith with God. Sin says, God, I hear your word, but I don't believe you. I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that's in my best interest. And it says, God, I know what you're saying I should do. I don't trust you. In its essence, every single time we sin, we are calling God a liar. We are saying your command is not good, it is not my best interest, and you don't love me. And so we are rebelling against God's authority. You see why sin is so serious. It's not just the breaking of a rule. It's not like you just didn't, you broke a rule. Sin is a, is a breaking of the relationship. It's saying, God, you're not trustworthy. I, I'm on my own here. I reject your word. I reject your authority. I don't believe you. And so with that, we broke faith with God. We broke faith with God, and we're going to talk about uh, a number of the implications of that next week, but the primary result was that because of sin, we as human beings became estranged from God. We became rebels and outlaws. As rebels, the image of God in us was not lost, but it certainly has become distorted. We no longer reflect God's rule as we ought. We no longer are his, his holy and royal representatives. Not only that, but as outlaws and rebels, we are now under judgment. And the only way to be reconciled to God is for, for our penalty to be paid. So Jesus came to restore us, to redeem us, to buy us back. He did this by giving his life for us. And on the cross, he paid the ransom for the sins of many. And the many are those who put their faith and their trust in him. He paid the ransom with his own blood. He took our judgment on the cross so that we once again could live as the children of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, all those who have faith in Jesus have been reconciled to God. Uh, but not only that, God has then given to those who have faith in Jesus what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. 
We are ambassadors of Christ's new kingdom, pleading with others to be reconciled to God so that no longer will their sins be counted against them, is what he says. So here we see that the other aspect of our mission, we are to subdue the earth as God's image bearers. That's the cultural mandate. But then those who are outside of Christ in rebellion against God, and so now we are engaging in the great commission which is to reconcile people back to God so they're restored back to him. It's all part of this this ultimate mission that God has given to his people. Engaging the world, bringing it under God's reign, and we do so by being agents of reconciliation in the world. Now there's so much more that we could say about this, and we're gonna pick it up next week, but let's make sure we understand this part and apply it. While our mission is global, we live locally. Adam and Eve were told to exercise dominion over the whole earth, but they began in the place where they were. They began in the Garden of Eden, and God says they are to serve it and protect it. We begin where we are. This isn't the Garden of Eden, but we have the Garden of God's real nearby, right? It's a beautiful place. We've been placed here to serve and protect, to love and to care for. We've been placed here with the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. Uh, as God's people. And so in the same way, we're to, to love our city, to care about our city, to be for our city. And so our calling is not merely to live in Colorado Springs, but to live for Colorado Springs. Um, here's the challenge, you know, 50 years ago, there were about 200,000 people in Colorado Springs. Now there's close to 700,000 people in Colorado Springs, which means most of us are not from here. And, and the problem with that is, when you're not from someplace, you don't treat it like home. You tend to take its resources. You tend to extract from it. You tend to use it instead of seeking to enhance it. God has placed you here. And it may be for a year, five years, for the rest of your life. But you are here uh, in the same way God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. You're here to serve and protect. And so we want to be a blessing to our city. And so we're going to talk more about what that means. But let's begin here. Let's begin with prayer. Let's continue to pray for our city. And so for the next three weeks, continuing our theme from last year, we're going to invite you to go on a journey of 21 days of prayer where we will pray for our city every day. To help you with this, once again, we're going to send out a text message every day starting tomorrow. And you can get these texts uh, by simply sending a text to that number, 555-888. You're allowed to use your phone right now if you want. Uh, 555-888, and if you send a text to that number, and simply in the words, all you're going to say is for the city, no spaces, for the city, then starting tomorrow, you're going to get a text with a Bible verse and a prayer prompt, and we begin to pray for our city. How many of you believe our city needs prayer? (laughs) Okay, if you don't, you're new here. Uh, um, We do. It's, It's a gorgeous, awesome place, but it is so desperately broken. How many of you believe that God actually works through prayer? Okay. Looks like everybody. Okay, good. At least most of you. So we actually believe the most important thing we can be doing for our city is to pray for our city. So will you join me 21 days of prayer? If you don't use texting, just pray every day. Uh, and, um, and you can be a part of it that way. Uh, but we want to be a blessing to our city. God has placed you here. You are made in the image of God. Your neighbor is made in the image of God. And he has placed us here to serve, to love, to honor, to protect, 
and to tell them about the glorious kingdom of God. So may God use us in this mission. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, for the way it sets straight who we are. We forget. <clears throat> Some of us, uh, probably even today, have been wondering if they have worth, if they have value, if they have dignity. They're wondering if they are anybody because they've been trying to get their worth and their dignity and value from, from accomplishment, from mother's approval, from so many other things and have felt empty. Oh Lord, remind us, remind us who we are, that we are made in your image. And Father, as we look at others in our city, and sometimes we can despise them, convict us, O oh Lord, that we are despising your image. Convict us that we might love them, uh, broken as they are, broken as we are. And Father, as we love them, may we remember our royal mission, that you've called us here to, to subdue, uh, to, uh, to uh, rule, to serve, to protect, and so, Lord, may we be people who serve our city well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.